Welcome to At the Threshold, a podcast for ministry leaders during this new, unsettled season in the life of the church. We are your hosts, Ashley Alley Crawford and Shelley Pitts. And we are both clergy in the Great Plains Conference of the United Methodist Church, comprised of approximately a thousand churches in the states of Kansas and Nebraska. Shelley works with clergy faith and wellness with the Great Plains Conference. And Ashley is the Clergy Recruitment and Development Coordinator, and we're sharing this from the Office of Clergy Excellence. Our focus here in At the Threshold is to host a conversation with and for clergy in order to describe what's happening, ask questions to help get us unstuck, and encourage the heart of pastors and leaders in this liminal time in which we find ourselves. Liminal may be a new word, but a new season calls for a new word. Liminal means a threshold from what we've always known to, well, we don't know just yet what life and ministry is becoming. Our goal here is to find a little light at the threshold. In our conversations, we are seeking to describe some of the dynamics that we're seeing and identify some questions and possibilities that are bubbling up for us. Ultimately, we hope you leave today with your heart encouraged in some way. Each time we gather, it's our hope that you'll glean one or two things to think about, act upon, or pray through. We want to welcome everyone who's joining us today for our conversation. Our topic today is the third in our three-part series that we're calling Back to School Theology 101. And just as this is the time of year that students are returning to the classroom, we're inviting pastoral leaders to return to some learning as well uh, to help us kind of sort through some of the theological concerns of the season. Our focus today is the church with a big C. Um, By that, we mean the body of Christ, the believers across the world, and the believers in our own congregations. Most of us listening are part of leading uh, these individual churches, little c. And the disruption that we are feeling as we're trying to renegotiate being the church, big C, when we can't gather in one place for worship, is very disorienting for most of us. For many in our congregations, the church had come to really be centered on a building, a regular weekly schedule, a place of religious services, and a community partner. This is not an improper understanding of the church, but it's definitely incomplete. And this pandemic has forced all of us to think more deeply about who the church big C is and what the role that a local expression of the church um, is so that so that we might be able to be faithful to the thing that Christ is calling us to. It really is tempting for us uh, leaders in, in churches to just get caught up in all the technical adaptations for this season. How can I figure out Zoom Sunday school? Um, how am I going to plan the, the church conference? All these kinds of things. How are we going to plan for Advent if we're not able to be in person? This, these are normal, natural, technical kinds of questions for us. But this liminal season really um, isn't just about um, trying to figure out how to do all the things we used to do, um, but just now do them virtually. It really is an opportunity to kind of lean into some possibility. We think there might be an opportunity for us to expand or reclaim or challenge some of our conventional ways of thinking about the church uh, for renewed uh, renewed understanding of the body of Christ. 
We have invited two early church scholars to join in our conversation today. They embody a love for the church that is evident by their ministries. It's clear that at the core of their witness is teaching about the church of the past and building up the church of today. We are truly grateful for both of them that they are joining our conversation. First, we welcome Dr. Amy Oden. Over the past 30 years, she has been a college professor, a seminary professor, a seminary dean. She is now an itinerant professor teaching at several schools. She is also a spiritual director. Amy is committed in her scholarship to illuminating ancient voices for Christian life today, introducing spiritual practices that can ground and nourish lives of following Jesus into the world. Her most recent book is right here, right now, The Practice of Christian Mindfulness. Dr. Odin, we welcome you today. Thanks. It's it's a privilege to be here. Our second guest is Reverend Austin Rivera, a visiting assistant professor of religion at Huntington College in Montgomery, Alabama, and an elder here in the Great Plains Conference. He has pastored United Methodist Church congregations in Kansas and Nebraska, and is currently finishing his PhD in ancient Christianity at Yale University. Austin's research focuses on theology, poetry, and biblical interpretation of the early church. Austin, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Great to be here. Dr. Odin, we'd like to begin with you. Will you tell us something about you that didn't show up in your biography that we can begin to get to know you just a bit? Um, yeah, I'll, I'll share something. It's, it's a little bit on this, on the more serious side, but I think is such a present part of my life over these last few years. Um, and one that I know many other people share, and that is that my husband, um, has early onset dementia, uh, frontotemporal dementia. And so I've been his primary caregiver for about six years and um, have just moved him into a memory care facility because he really needed that level of care. And I share that as part of my biography because it's just been so much of the disorienting experience of my life that now in the pandemic, in some ways, I I feel a common bond that everybody's disoriented, not just me, you know, it's an odd thing, but um, but I, in some ways, I feel like the last five or six years has really given me some, some stronger muscles to be in disorientation. Um, so I share that. Thank you. I think that will help guide our conversation with you today in the midst of this disorienting time. Thank you for being um, a leader and being able to share out of the depths of what you walk or our walk today. Would you take us a little bit deeper to tell us something now that you're noticing about the conversation about the nature of the church during this season, and if there's something you wish people were talking about right now? Mm. I think the the thing I notice most strongly about the nature of the church is... um, new conversations about the mission of the church. So the nature of the church being the place of of the gathered people who uh, both praise God, bring lament, and listen, right? And so as the gathered people, 
um, in many ways, our both our praise and our lament, I think, has opened opened our eyes to to whole new questions that we just haven't been asking about the mission of the church, or we've been trying to ask, uh, but haven't really had the existential, visceral kind of experience that that gives us eyes to see. So I think, I think part of what I wish for, and, and Austin may want to echo this is um, in some ways, a greater sense of the big historical arc, the big sweep that in fact, this kind of shakeup is more the norm for us as the church over 2000 years. Um, Actually disequilibrium is more the norm than equilibrium. We just happen to have lived through the late 20th century, mid to late 20th century, many of us, that was a time of some equilibrium. So, so I, I wish that as we are asking new questions and facing our own disorientation, we could see the continuity of that with, you know, going all the way back to the children of Israel in the wilderness disoriented, you know, and, and all the way through church history. We can like Austin, we can nerd out later on all those examples, but that's what I wish we were uh, maybe more aware of. I think it would give us more courage uh, and and more confidence that God is doing something here. Thank you so much for inviting us into what um, we can explore together today. Austin, we'll turn to you. Would you share the same? Would you share something maybe not uh, found in your bio and and uh, the same questions about what you're noticing and what you wish the people were talking about in the church. Yeah, um, I think one thing that uh, I, I am a big fan of science fiction and fantasy. Um, television shows, video games, books, of course. Um, that's always been a part of my life since I was a child. Um, and I think that it is something that has served me well in this moment. Um, not just because, you know, you're stuck in your house, so you read a book, right? But um, that that kind of literature and storytelling helps us to imagine a world that is different than the one we live in. And I think that is something that is absolutely necessary right now as a church and even beyond the church, just as a, as a nation and a world right now, that um, uh, we need to be able to exercise that muscle that says uh, things can be different than they are now. Um, and to imagine what a different kind of world or a different um, kind of church would look like going forward, um, because we are in this moment of disruption where things are not settled. And that is often a moment that's a fork in the road. Um, And we can talk again about a lot of um, moments in church history. These moments of disruption are moments where you can go right, you can go left, you can go back, you can go forward. Um, and I've always valued uh, stories that help me imagine things that are different than they are right now. So that's something that, um, that from outside my bio that I think is, is relevant to what's going on right now. And then the second, the second question piece of that there was, what am I thinking about? What are you noticing? Yeah, what are what you noticing, noticing? Yeah. about the conversations, about the nature of the church? What are you, what's around you? What are you noticing from, from your perspective? And, and what do you wish the conversations could be? Yeah, um, I think one thing I've noticed with a lot of people uh, in the church, uh, in leadership in the church, but also just your average layperson, is that um, this moment of disruption 
has has really allowed us to notice some things that were there all along, but we could sort of muddle through and, and not think about. So this summer I taught a course of study here in Alabama and um, going through some of these same issues with folks who were, you know, pastoring in the midst of it. Um, many of them, as we were reflecting on um, theological issues and, and historical stuff, um, had reflections on things like, oh, wow, these struggles we've been having, for example, on what on earth do we do with communion when we can't meet together? They realized as we were discussing this as a class, wow, this is revealing stuff that was there all the time that we never actually talked about as a congregation, never got the congregation together in any sort of study or sermon series or anything to talk about what communion means. This is just one example. Um, and so I think this moment as... Um, as painful and as stressful and as anxiety inducing as it is, can also be an opportunity for us to see things that have maybe been there all along. And because we're at this moment of disruption to maybe actually um, do something that will, that will say, set a foundation for those things to be better going on in the future. Um, and I think that's another way that uh, as we think about all the anxiety that comes from all the new decisions that we have to make and new work that we have on top of everything else and the comfortable work that we knew how to do that we can no longer do, um, that having some sense of, of hope that this is a moment that's revealing things, that's giving us an opportunity to do things that we might not have otherwise without the disruption, I think that can be an encouraging thing in this moment. Thank you so much. It's uh, great to to get to start to get in. So I, I want to dive into something that both of you have sort of alluded to a little bit. This is not the world's and the church's first time experiencing disruption, even pandemic, um, health crisis, et cetera. And so I'm just curious, uh, Amy, would you would you start us out and and maybe just a look at the back, look backward um, into the way the church has navigated these sorts of things before? Yeah, sure. I mean, a, a lot of the ways we've navigated major crises, often natural disasters, but certainly plagues um, and the fallout from wars, for example, refugees at the borders, that kind of thing, um, you know, are as contextual, right? Each each incident has its own concrete details. Um I, I, I want to share a couple that come to mind. So one is in Alexandria in Africa in the early third century, um, early 200s, um, there's a plague and uh, many people are dying and it's contagious and nobody wants to go in and remove the dead bodies. Um, you know, when we had the recent Ebola crisis in Sierra Leone, Liberia, I thought of this early African experience of the church and, um, and of course, Christianity is illegal, even criminalized. Um, and yet Christians decide that one of their calls of discipleship is hospitality, is welcome, welcoming the stranger. And in this case, the ill and even the dead are strangers. This was a whole new concept for me, welcoming the dead. Um, and, and, and Christians go into remove bodies and bury them, bodies of people who've died in the plague. And the other folks around them in Alexandria, the non-Christian world is kind of 
very impressed and a little bit shocked and asked the Christians, you know, why are you doing this? And they say, because each human bears the image of God. And so we're not doing it for that person, but we're doing it for God whose image that person bears. And that's what, that's what welcome is about, is welcoming that image of God, or we might say the Christ, right, that we meet, even in a dead person. Um, and, and that, you know, it, that witness is so radical in that moment um, that it sparks a whole cult, a conversation, you know, with uh, other folks outside of the church. Now, that being said, they, they weren't just reckless in this, you know, they had conversations about who would do this and how they would do it, you know, but, but I think that's, that's one example of a, of a theological and um, sort of ethical practical framework for being in relationship during a time rather than just the framework of disease or the framework of fear. Um, you know, the other really uh, one we all may know that comes to mind is um, in the 14th century and the, the plague, the great plague that comes through Europe and through the British Isles. And you may know the writings of Julian and Norwich that comes out of that time as well. Um, and how important the church's proclamation of God's love is in a time of disruption and disorientation, because the temptation for the church in that time is to read it as punishment, to read it as God's displeasure, we're being punished, who sinned, and let's figure out who to blame. And so a lot of energy goes into blaming, do we blame the government, do we blame the Jews, do we blame, right, uh, blaming and, and uh, feeling guilty, feeling sinful, um, and it sparks a whole range of what I call spiritual terrorism, right, within the church of sort of using that moment, exploiting the fear to get people sort of spiritually anxious uh, and afraid of God. And so in the midst of that, you know, Julian speaks, others speak, um, to come back to this incredible claim of the sovereignty, that God's sovereignty is God's sovereign love. Love is sovereign, right? Nothing can uh, shake God from that foundation of love. So that's a, I mean, and that's the good news of Jesus Christ. So that proclamation is probably more important even during a time of crisis um, than during a time of stasis. So there's a couple of a couple moments that come to mind. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. Thank you. That's great, Austin. What what comes to mind for you? Yeah, um, some similar things. You know, as we're talking about this, I remember one of the moments earlier this year that really struck me. This must have been sometime in March, I think. Um, I saw that the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem was being closed for the first time since the Black Death in the 1340s. And in one sense, that's a terrifying thought to be living in those kinds of times. But it also reminded me, we as the church know what to do in a certain sense. There are lots of institutions in the world today that have no idea what to do when this happens. And a lot of the things that, um, you know, have fallen out in the world have to do with people just, we don't know what to do when something this big hits. But as a church, we have a memory, right? Right. We remember to the we had we can draw on our deep history 
of what we have done in the past. And so I saw that as a great symbol of both the the terror of this moment um, and also the potential that we have as Christians to remember our history. Um, and as Amy mentioned, you know, in the early church in the period of the later Roman Empire, uh, these sorts of major outbreaks of disease were, were fairly common. Um, obviously, they didn't have the same kind of medical knowledge that we have now and all sorts of other things that contribute to um, a society like ours in North America not having these same outbreaks of disease. And so it was a fairly common occurrence uh, in the ancient world. And as Amy noted, she stole one of the main things I was going to talk about because um, it's just a famous, it's a famous thing in the early church that people who aren't Christians notice, oh my goodness, these people take care of the sick people. They bury these people who have no relation to them at all just because they have been commanded to love their neighbor and to treat everyone as though they bear the image of God. And there have been some scholars who have argued that uh, the way that Christians behaved during these plagues, especially in the third century, was a major contributor to many people becoming Christians because they saw when the chips were down, when people were dying in the streets, when, when the world seemed bleak, the Christians were acting in love. They were acting in hope. Um, they were not reckless, but they didn't have the same kind of fear of death that other people had. This, one, this is something that people often note in the early church. The Christians were willing to go in and care for these people who were sick, even putting themselves at risk of being uh, sick there. So this was something in the early church that the rest of the world noticed how the Christians behaved during these times of plague. And they noticed that it was different because everything that the Christians did was motivated by love. Um, in, my, in my scholarship, one of the people that I really focus on that I'm writing my dissertation on right now is a man named Ephraim the Syrian or Ephraim of Nisibis. He lived in what's now like Turkey and Syria, that, that area. Um, and he was on the one hand, a great teacher and incredible poet of the early church, one of the great poets of the early church. Um, he lived through a lot of stuff in his life, though. The city that he lived in was a city that was right on the border between the Roman Empire and the Persian Empire. He was subject to um, suffering from war as a result of that. The city was oftentimes under siege, one side or the other. And towards the end of his life, when he was an older man, he had to leave the city because the Persians had conquered it and they forced all the Christians to leave. Um, but the way his life ended is what's relevant in particular for this story. So here's a man who's, who's suffered a lot in his life, who would uh, be perfectly entitled to say, I'm going to retire and write poetry and please don't bother me anymore. <laughs> um, I've already had to leave my home city where I've lived my whole life. But the way that he died was caring for the sick in a time of plague. Um, and uh, that that is something that was seen as sort of a major calling of the church. This is one of the things that we do as Christians. Now, Today's world is different than the world of the ancient world. We have these massive infrastructures of medical care. Um, if, if your church was like, we have all decided we are gonna just care for the sick, the hospital would say, uh, you can't come in here now. <laughs> You're not allowed in. Um, so we have a different system than they do, but that same ethos, I think, can be something that inspires us today, that this is one of the marks of Christianity is this compassion in particular in times when people are getting sick as they are today. So that's the stuff that jumps out to me just immediately from the early church. 
Can I piggyback on that? Because yeah. Austin says this, and I want to add just kind of another, uh, take that, the angle of, of, say a word here about risk-taking. Because risk-taking is a key practice for faith, for, I think, welcoming the stranger, for hospitality. Risk is a critical practice. Um, that doesn't mean recklessness, but it does mean if we're not uh, experiencing disruption, if we're not risking in ways that are causing change, transformation within us, then probably we're just doing some good stuff, but we may not be in the work of the gospel. And so I think, I think risk is an important uh, conversation to be in. Now, I think in our own time right now, yeah, you know, like Austin said, it doesn't mean going in to care for the sick. But, but it may look like risking uh, experimenting with some new online forms of community and, you know, 90% of which may fail. It may fail, may not work. Okay, we risk that. But, but that risk-taking is, is one of our practices of hope, right? It's an exercise of the imagination and it expresses confidence in who God is. Uh, and it's one of the ways we learn and we're transformed. So I think... Um, as leaders, one of the things we can do is invite people into risk-taking that, that is deliberate, right? Again, not reckless, but is deliberate. Yeah, that's good. That, that's such a great um, reminder of being attentive to the, the guidance of the Holy Spirit and, and being able to take those risks that are, um, that I think that, that are empowered by the Spirit. Um, Amy, I have a question for you. I've told you this before, but um, I've got your book here, <laughs> your, your most recent right here, right now. And I was reading it. I had just started it right before the pandemic hit. And in my own season of disruption, I forgot everything, including how to breathe. <laughs> I was so worried thinking about the future. And I was like, I'm going to dig in. So, so truly, your book was sort of my guide to navigating uh, the, the very early days of the pandemic. And I just wanted to, to give you an opportunity um, to, to tell us a, a little bit about that. Um, how, how would you, how, how would, what, are, what are you sharing in here that, um, that, about Christian mindfulness that, that could be helpful to us in this season? Yeah, I think um, simply to remind us as Christians that attentiveness practices are deeply rooted in Jesus's preaching and ministry and deeply rooted in our whole 2000 year spiritual tradition. So um, a lot of the attentiveness practices today that are called mindfulness, um, mm -hmm. we have in our own tradition and that Jesus's um, whole preaching of having eyes to see and ears to hear, right? Be mindful. Don't miss it. You know, the, the reign of God, it's right here in front of us. It's not somewhere off on a cloud. God's doing something where you are, not once you get to be a good Christian or once your church gets its act together. No, right, right now, where we are. So open your eyes, open your ears, learn to be attentive and mindful of God's life in which we are participating. So, so that proclamation that is so central to the Christian life um, and still so radical. I think we still don't grasp how radical it is to make the claim that God, you know, God of the solar systems we haven't even discovered yet is at work right here, right? That's just mind-blowing. Um, but, but that claim, I think, is one deeply needed at this moment, right? Because we're in these cycles of political reactivity, 
right? Where each side escalate, 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 where we're told you have to pick a side and you have to be right. Um, that what that attentiveness to God does is help interrupt, put a pause in escalation in the kind of reactivity and inflamed social political environment we're in. And so as Christians, I think we just have an incredible opportunity right now in our own lives to be witnesses to that kind of attentiveness, that mindfulness that helps us pause, breathe, right? Ruach, the, the created, the, the spirit, the breath of God, uh, breathe in a moment uh, and, and pause and look for what God is doing instead of our own righteousness. Great. Thank you so much for that invitation. Austin, we turn to you. You are a scholar who is deeply rooted in the life of the local congregation after serving as a pastor in churches along your way toward academic work. What do you think is central to the ethos of Methodism that we could reclaim during this season as we're navigating again or for some for the first time who we are? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, one of the things that I've come back to at several points in this pandemic is um, how in early Methodism, it was not actually the congregation gathering in the church that was the key place for everyone. It was the class meeting, which was a much smaller group. You guys all know this. I don't, I don't need fully rehearse the class meeting for you. Much smaller group um, where you were sort of watching over one another's spiritual lives and encouraging one another and keeping one another accountable praying together, uh, um, uh, collecting money for the poor in your community together. These much smaller groups, before we ever had any church buildings as Methodists, this is who we were as Methodists. And in this moment of the pandemic, I think we really miss that because it's a lot easier to get eight people together safely than it is to get 80 people together safely. Um, and I think as we go forward, uh, that that is something that is, you know, right at the heart of our history. It's something we've gone away from at this point. You know, we'll, we'll have those kinds of groups in our churches. And and I would be interested, you know, some of you reflecting on, wow, are some of those small groups in my church, have they continued going on? Or have they similarly been disrupted by this? And what are ways that some of those small groups could continue on, even if we can't continue on in the big group? Um and so that's something I've reflected on a lot in a lot of different directions. I think me as a, as a clergy as well, often thinking in that clergy mindset, it has been sort of humbling to think about um, a non-clergy-led space as the heart of the church. Um, you know, obviously, uh, I think the work that we do as clergy is terribly important. Um, but sometimes we forget that we aren't, in fact, the center of the church, uh, the Holy Spirit, the presence of Jesus. That's the center of the church. And uh, as much as we sometimes forget it, like we don't need to be there for that to happen. And I think there are practices within our Methodist history at the heart of who we are um, that in some ways would be easier to continue uh, in this time uh, when we, on the other hand, have found it like, the, all the crazy logistical challenges of trying to recreate the big meeting in the church building uh, in some form. And, and there's some ways you can do it with some success, um, but we've forgotten that, wow, there are other ways of being the church 
that that core, you know, experiencing the presence of the spirit with other people, watching over one another in love, um, God helping to guide one another on our spiritual journey that actually happen better in smaller groups. Um, and that this might be a moment for us to ask like, wow, what's a way that I could kind of flip my congregation so that the core thing was these, these smaller connections. And that from that, we grew up into a congregation that could meet together in larger groups sometimes, as opposed to our core is this larger group. And for many of us, the pandemic has just ripped up those roots and all of a sudden we don't know what to do. So that's something that I've really thought about um, is, you know, what is the heart of Methodism? It's these small groups and how can we uh, lean into that gift that the Holy Spirit gave us in the 18th century and we've sort of put on the shelf and let it gather dust in some contexts. I was wondering if each of you could share with us, we'll we begin with you, Amy, could you share with us what is a spiritual practice that has been nurturing your own soul during this season? You know, um, I, I find myself just craving being outside. And I think it's because of this kind of shelter in place stuff. And that's its own practice, right? And so be, when I'm when I am taking a walk, uh, being out in the out out in the world, um, there's a lake nearby. I can go walk a trail to not have on earbuds to really just de- unplug, which is sort of a practice. But I've also noticed a practice within that practice. So I want to just say that it's been such a source of solace and comfort and joy to me to be in the practice of beholding where I will just pause and see, you know, a tiny leaf, usually a small thing. So the practice of beholding is to just notice one small thing, my fingernail and behold it with the gaze of awe and love and wonder with which God beholds it. Right. And that that practice I carry into the grocery store and uh, into everyday life, drive, you know, I'm driving down the street and I just see, you know, something out of the corner of my eye and just pause and behold that for three seconds. You know, it's not some fancy big practice. But over time, what I'm finding is in the midst of pandemic with anxiety and um, just a very simple, in some ways, mindfulness practice of beholding um, really calls me to see um, just the sacredness of all things. That's really helpful to me. And it, it harkens back to what you talked about, even of Julian in Norwich. That's, I mean, she did a lot of that beholding and what we can learn from those who have gone from before us into the now is so helpful. And so thank you for helping me consider that beholding for the now. Austin, we turn to you. Yeah. Um, I think one of the things that has been sort of newly important, it was a practice that I was doing before, but has been newly important in the pandemic is um, uh, my wife and I praying together out of the Book of Common Prayer every night before we go to bed. Um, the the service of Compline, which is a service that's for the the night at the end of the day, um, and that is something we'd been we've been sort of doing before. Uh, something that we wanted to do once we got married was establish this practice, um, but one of the prayers that you pray in that is for um, all those who are sick and are, you know, 
all the all those who watch and weep this night is how it begins and just like man when we were praying that in march when this was all starting that prayer would hit you in the face every day and it has it has continued to um as as we've been praying that so that is something that we've been doing before but just took on a whole different significance and also just the sense of like um i mean it feels weird, right? Like I'm a preacher. I should have the right sense that every time is a time to pray, but like, this feels like a time we need to be praying. Um, and to, to have something that you've been doing before that you all of a sudden realize has a deeper resonance. Um, and that was made for this moment, even though you had been living it in previous moments. Um, that's been a real source of inspiration and, and comfort. And I think it goes back to what I was saying earlier of like, like we, as the church, we actually know what to do if we'll take a moment to remember who we are and where we've been in the past, um, that, that we actually know what to do in a weird, shocking circumstance like this. And so that's been a really concrete way that I've experienced that. Great. Thank you. Those are, those are both really great examples. Um, and, and so glad, glad that you're calling those to mind for us here. Well, I want to, I want to give us a chance to kind of consider something that feels uh, maybe a little more practical um, um, or perhaps even a little bit more um, pressing uh, for some of our, our folks at this point in time. I think I get the sense as I talk to some pastors that they're concerned um, about their people not worshiping again in person, not returning to that community. Um, and and I, I just want to invite each of you to kind of offer for us a word of encouragement or um, or just a word of instruction, uh, maybe some groundwork that people can kind of lay right now, even in this season, about um, about the role that the local congregation may play um, in the future. Amy, Amy, would you start with us with that? Um, sure. I, I want to notice some of these dynamics. Um, and and so, so part of that anxiety for clergy um, is that we've really so tied discipleship to membership. <laughs> and one of the things we're seeing now, I think, is the way um, discipleship is more and more permeable, right? It's, it's that, that the sort of the boundaries of the congregation are becoming permeable through virtual experiences, through not being in the building, um, and so it's, it, there may be folks who don't want to come back and worship in the building again. And there may also be new folks who have just been introduced to your community that are going to be really curious. Like, what do these people do when they get in a building? Um, or the only, you know, church services they remember were from their childhood. So I think to also remember that there's going to be, um, you know, possibly some, some new interest. That being said... Um, it is also a time, I think, where happily we are being forced to break down the boundary between Sunday and real life, right? There's Sunday in the church building, and then there's the rest of my life at work and school, and right? And so what happens online is now, even when we're worshiping together, we're doing a Zoom Bible study together, you see my cat on my chair, and you see my kid come in, and and, and so real life is now integrating more deeply with religious practice. And this is an incredible opportunity, um, I think, for, again, for discipleship, for having that more deep integration of faith into everyday life. 
So regardless of whether folks get back in the building, I think there's some seeds being planted there that will bear fruit for whatever new forms church takes. Um, yeah, let me, let me let Austin jump in here on this or yeah. Yeah, yeah, this is something that um, I've thought about. I think like, I think I should start with, as, as a pastor, one of my great weaknesses is the kind of interpersonal networking stuff. And so whenever I think about this and like what a pastor should be doing, it's always bringing me to these things that I myself am terrible at as a pastor, like keeping in touch with everybody. And so I'm aware that a lot of like keeping in touch with everybody, organizing new things like that was the stuff that I am the worst at in pastoring. And so um, I want to first name that there's going to be a lot of stuff that people are told they should or have to be doing. And if they don't do it, it's their fault that their congregation suffers materially. And I just want to name that like it's more important to understand what your gifts are for this moment than what your shortcomings are for this moment. Because the second piece is, I think it's really important for people to be able to see what's, what's happening in this process and what will happen at the other end of it in terms of, uh, yeah, I mean, I would be surprised if any church doesn't lose a significant number of members for all sorts of different reasons, all related to what's happening. But that I think going into that to, A, give yourself space to lament it and not just see it as a problem that needs to be solved, that um, I think a lot of folks' pastoral mindset is like, oh gosh, I've got to find a way to fix this, as opposed to uh, sort of lamenting it. And also, you know, something I've been sensing more and more, and part of it is reading all these early church fathers, is being able to accept some of what is happening as a divine judgment in some way, in the sense of like a winnowing of like a sifting of things that happen. And I think one of, in United Methodism, there's a lot of good reasons why my United Methodist upbringing did not teach me a lot about the judgment of God. There are other traditions that get that wrong and maybe talk about it too much. But I think there's also something there to be reclaimed that there are these periods in the church where we experience this kind of sifting. And what that means is some people will not be there at the end of it. Some people will look very different at the end of it. And that is not, it's not your fault as a pastor that you did something wrong. It's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, and having a trust in the overarching work that God is doing in each individual life, in each individual piece of the creation, like Amy was talking about, being mindful of like God God is at work in literally every person and the sense that there are things that we can't see that he, he is at work in here and being able to um, kind of accept that this moment of, of judgment is what the Bible calls this, this kind of sifting, this change that we didn't ask for. We would have preferred not to experience, but God in some way that we can't see Seas will be for the ultimate benefit of all his creatures. Um, and so I think like more than the practical stuff, I think, I think there are people more versed in me in the like uh, techniques of managing a congregation that could give you like, okay, yeah, here's how you should, you know, network with people in this sort of way. And I've talked with people where it's been working, like there's good advice out there for that. But I think there's a big spiritual piece to it, which is allow yourself room to lament 
and allow yourself room to experience this as something God has done. Uh, uh, both experiencing that as, ooh, that makes me think humbly, you know, and also as, oh, wow, that means there's good at the end of this that can happen because it's something God is at work in. Very good, very helpful. I, I'm going to add a, just another sort of practical suggestion, and that is, you know, you can always invite folks um, to identify the sac- sacred space in their home or what is sacred about their experience at home to begin to, to connect the dots that, you know, God doesn't live in the church building. And so h- how do you experience God's presence in your home or what are some of the things in your house that 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 you bring to mind that bring to mind your own discipleship and those concrete you know objects um and and experiences right and so people can begin to cultivate that so that so that when we if and when people are back in the building we don't go back to this bifurcated god is on sunday and the rest of my real life is over here as people are gathering back and we'll invite them to um, add their questions to the chat box um, or to let us know, but we had one question that really stems um, into that, uh, what you just shared. I wonder if you could, either of you could speak to this. This was a question that came in. I agree with the spirit being the heart. How do we get our congregations to see this also as often as they look to us as pastors to be the center? Could either of you speak to that a little bit more, please? Um, yeah, that is a great question. And to me, that's one of the things reflecting myself, talking with my colleagues and friends who are who are pastoring churches in the midst of this, I think that is one of the big questions. Is And I think the answer is the difficult answer that it takes a lot of time to develop that. If you've been trained all your life that the, the heart of your spiritual life, and it's not necessarily a negative thing, is Sunday morning church, and you look to your minister who has given you these inspirational messages, who has been there when you've been in personal crises, um, who you can go to physically, to this physical place, and that is your spiritual anchor. We've got people who've lived 60, 80 years with that as their life. And I think the hard thing for us now is we wanna be able to help them turn on a dime and realize these other ways that they can experience God in other parts of their life And I think the big thing is, man, it takes time and patience um, and perseverance in in working with our congregations. Um, And this goes back to something I said at the beginning, that this moment is revealing to us a lot of things that were there all the time that we maybe didn't notice, that for all sorts of different reasons, many of which are not really anybody's intentional fault, we as a United Methodist Church have really emphasized that Sunday morning stuff. And we haven't spent as much time emphasizing for people can do on their own or as a family or gathering with with friends outside of the church. Um, And the truth is it takes a long time to build up those habits, especially when you've got a whole set of other habits that are pushing against them, especially in a moment when people are really mourning the loss of what has been the heart of their spiritual life. So I think that is exactly the right question to ask. And the frustrating part about the answer is it takes a lot of time to build those muscles, those spiritual muscles. Yeah. I, is it okay if I jump in, please? Uh, I mean, I think a couple of uh, historical practices 
that that we can use one is testimony uh, that we help people learn how to tell their own stories by asking questions like you know where uh, you know whether it's God sightings like where have you seen God this week or it's uh, some people that's even too intimidating like I don't know how to see God so it's maybe it's where did you experience love or joy or when have you had a moment of forgiveness or grace. And so helping people begin to narrate their own experiences is one way for them to own. Again, that's more individual than the corporate church, but it begins to give them a vocabulary that's truly native to them, right? That they don't have to take on some fake conversion story, um, but to really do that. And, And the other practice, and this does come back to the pastor, however, is to begin to to see and name out loud in them. Um, wow, wow, Susan, um, it sounds like maybe God's inviting you to try this new thing. Um, or, hey, George, as you're telling me that, I'm wondering if you think God might be X, Y, and Z. So as a way for them to start owning their experience instead of looking for you to be the mediator of it. There's a question to me in the chat box, and I'm going to go ahead and answer it publicly. It's a question about um, messages on the internet proclaiming we're facing the end time tribulations. Um, as a historian, how might I, I respond to that? I, you know, the first, first thing I always think is that it's, um, is how chronocentric we are. That is, we think somehow our time is special right? Like God's had all of history to come to the end of the age. And, but now that I'm here, now that we're here, God's going to do something really amazing and in, in the world, right? It's just very egocentric. <laughs> um, but more importantly, Jesus tells us uh, that we just won't know and probably don't need to spend a lot of energy speculating. John Wesley himself really warned against speculative theology, um, because it's just, it generally doesn't bear the fruit of the spirit. And that's what we're always looking for. So I would encourage folks to move into that beautiful posture of unknowing, uh, instead of really trying to get caught up in knowing the mind of God. You know, that's, that's what I would say. Austin, anything else you wanted to say that you didn't get to say yet? Yeah, I think, well, definitely second what Amy said, you know, um, the Bible does talk about, you know, plagues and whatever at the end of the world, but it's happened a lot of times before and they thought the same thing at that moment and it didn't happen. So, you know, maybe, but I wouldn't, you know, I'm not a Methodist, so I don't gamble, but I wouldn't put money on it. Um, uh, I am a Methodist, so I don't gamble. So I'm a, uh, uh, that's a good Methodist joke there for all of us. Uh, one thing I wanted to talk about just briefly that um, has been a part of conversations I've had with people during this time is um, reclaiming our sense that the the true church is not necess- is not an institution that exists now, but is a future thing. Um, this is you know we're getting into theology proper here, right? Uh, it's something that I think is easy to lose sight of when the institution here and now is going through all sorts of shocks. Um, and this is a conversation I was having with people before the pandemic because of everything that's going on in the United Methodist Church in particular. Um, and I think this is another thing where we need to remember what we have always believed as Christians, which is like we're on a journey towards the, the heavenly Jerusalem, the true church 
the, the, the actual church. We're moving towards it. We participate in it here and now through the Holy Spirit, through the love that we have for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, through the sacrament of communion, through all sorts of things. We experience that church, but the actual church is yet to come. We're on the road towards it. And that, to me, is a message of great hope, especially as a pastor, when some days you can feel like the weight of the church continuing to exist in your town is on your shoulders. And of course, you're collapsing under that burden, right? That's not a burden any of us can bear. Um, But remembering that the church is a work that God is doing and a work that is not yet complete. We are a work in process right now. And that was true before the pandemic when maybe everything seemed great. Uh, It's true now. It'll be true tomorrow. It'll be true 100 years from now, assuming the world doesn't end. It'll be true 100 years from now. It was true 500 years ago. We are all in process. We are on the way to the actual church. And that can give you some breathing space as a pastor to say, okay, we'll make it through this. It doesn't have to be perfect because it's not supposed to be perfect yet. And God will find a way to work through it. God is always bringing us closer and closer to that true church, which is a spiritual reality that's in the future for us. Thank you. Both of you leave us oriented, these historians who leave us oriented towards the future. I love it. It's so, so helpful for us. Well, thank you all. We we are coming on the end of our time, and it just has been such a great um, conversation and, and love having you two join us here. Uh, you, y'all have helped us kind of see that, that we aren't the first people to kind of endure this, and, and we can sort of look backwards to, to see some of the ways that the, that the church has um, navigated a posture of, um, of, of service, of mission, um, of hospitality, um, of great love. It's so, so, such a good reminder to us. And uh, Austin, I, I love that reminder that, that we as Christians, we know what to do, that we can be reminded uh, of who we are. Um, you've invited us to pay attention uh, to the gifts in the moment, um, to, uh, to attend in, um, in the things that, that God is doing here and to invite our, our people into, into that same sort of, um, same sort of uh, practice of beholding where God is. Well, um, we want to, to say that we're going to be sharing a few resources uh, on our episode page. And so there may be a few things that can help each of us as we, as we can continue forward in these endeavors. Well, uh, Shelly and I have been hosting these conversations every other week for the last four and a half months, and we are going to take a little hiatus here. So we're going to take a couple weeks off, um, but we hope that that everyone will be able to mark their calendars for our next conversation. On Thursday, October 29 at 1030 a.m., we're going to welcome Dr. Leah uh, Shade and Reverend Nancy Lambert. Nancy will be here to introduce our focus for orders and fellowship in January. And Dr. Shade will be uh, the, she'll be our, our primary guest. She's the author of Preaching in the Purple Zone, Ministry in the Red-Blue Divide. And uh, so she'll be here to help us to, uh, think about her work helping pastors bridge the things that separate us. It'll be a very timely conversation as the next uh, Tuesday brings a national election. So we hope that you will be able to join us for, for, for this conversation. 
you can register uh, for the conversation and other ones and find more resources at our website, greatplainsumc.org slash at dash the dash threshold. As we close today, we'd like to give our guests the final word. We'll begin with you, Amy, and then to Austin. Amy, what word of encouragement or hope do you offer those who are listening today? Um, you know, I've really been hearing, hearing Paul, you know, that I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor things present nor things to come, right, can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And that is really where our confidence lies. So I want, I want pastors to know um, it's, it's not all on you. It's, it's, you don't even have the power for it to all be on you, but, but that God's got this. And to you, Austin, thank you. Yeah, I think I'm going to close with um, something from the Joseph story in Genesis, where at the end of it, after all these crazy things have happened, they've sold their brother into slavery, famine, but then they've come back together. Um, what they say is God was in all this and we didn't realize it. Um, I, for, you know, I can't remember the exact verse, but that's basically what they say when the brothers have all come back together. They're in Egypt. They've survived the famine. God was in all this and we didn't realize it. And so I think in the midst of everything we're going on that's going on in our world right now, it can feel like God is not in it um, and that it's just a lot of chaos and a lot of hurt and fear. But we need to go forward with the hope that there will be a moment where we will be able to look back and we will say, wow, God was in all of that, even though we didn't see it at the moment. conversation today about navigating ministry in liminal time. You can find links to join future conversations at greatplainsumc.org slash at dash the dash threshold or subscribe to our podcast at the threshold on Podbean or Apple Podcasts. As for today, we hope that you've been able to see our new reality a bit clearer, asked a few new questions and been encouraged. And in the days ahead, we hope that you're finding some light at the threshold.